welcome to Already Saturday. It's Already Saturday. Welcome to it. Today we have an interview with musician, fellow Aussie via Nashville artist Emma Swift, who released a critically acclaimed Bob Dylan covers album called Blonde on the Tracks last year. Brilliant name, brilliant album. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, we both are, and I would say it's my favourite covers album of his, and boy, have lots of people tried covering his work. You've really got to check it out, introduce yourself with her cover of I Contain Multitudes. It is amazing, it'll floor you. And Emma spoke to us from Hotel Quarantine in Sydney. She's come back to do a run of shows. She also talked to us about living in a Republican state during a Trump, the Trump presidency. She's also recording a new album while she's here in Australia with producer Wayne Connolly, who's a brilliant producer, so we're really looking forward to hearing that. She said it's influenced by other Australian artists who found success overseas and then wrote very Australian-influenced kind of homesick albums, the likes of The Triffids, Think Go-Betweens, even Nick Cave. There's a lot in this one, so strap in and yeah. enjoy. Enjoy our chat with Emma Swift. Go see her live. All her tour dates will be in our show notes and also a link to where you can buy her brilliant record, Blonde on the Tracks. Um, how are you going? How's quarantine? I'm good. I'm on day eight, I think. Okay. It could Jeez. be day nine. I'm, everything's sort of blurring into one very long day. How are you keeping busy there? It's super busy because it was Dylan's birthday this week. It I was, mean, yeah. I've just been like in living on planet Dylan with all the super Dylan nerds uh, of the internet. <laughs> and so it's actually surprisingly rich. But I've worked from home since March last year. So I'm just so used to just not going anywhere and being married to my laptop. It's pretty dull but but it works <laughs> how do you guys are you able to leave you know are you working from home or, or what's the story yeah it's kind of life as usual here in Sydney if you're not quarantined in a hotel yeah I really only worked from home for about six weeks and then it was like straight back to the office before I even really felt safe leaving home we were back to the office um so it was just like a really short blip people in Melbourne had a, a longer lockdown they were locked down for about six months but um, here in Sydney, it was like business as usual, really. Yes, so lucky. I can't wait to escape, get straight mm. up to Newtown, go buy some records, like just do all this shit that I haven't been able to do in over a year. It's like, oh, shit, I can hug my friends. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So in America at the moment, is it still really like, are people still really living like in a lockdown existence? Not really in America because America has that total culture of like freedom, I do whatever I want. Um, so, But I'd been in London for the past six months because my partner's British and there was a really hardcore lockdown there. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't leave the house between December and April 17. Wow. You're back in Australia to play a bunch of shows. Oh, we actually heard, is the Perth show cancelled? Is that correct? Yeah, the Perth show got cancelled, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I mean, that's just a COVID-related thing. You sort of got to roll with the cancellation in yeah. pandemic times, but hopefully everything else will go ahead. And I suppose you haven't even been able to see your family since you've been here. You would have been shunted straight into lockdown. Yeah, I haven't seen my family for two and a half years. Wow. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you expect when you, you move overseas. I guess you kind of take for granted the idea that you can come in and out of countries and the pandemic's really thrown a terrible spin on that for so many people. I mean, it could be, I, I'm really lucky. 
you know, it could be so much worse. But yeah, so I'll be looking forward to seeing all my family and all my friends and having a dose of real life. world and for an artist who is such a live artist like you kind of make your living touring and stuff you've blown up while you haven't been able to play live at all has that been a weird kind of thing for you I don't know if I'd say I've blown up um but I, I have Guardian, um, Rolling Stone they all love you yeah you're right I, I've had a Bernie lot of it- <laughs> <laughs> I've had a lot of attention in the past 14 months on this Bob Dylan covers record and that's amazing and that's definitely due to the fact that I really I had to find a new job for myself that wasn't touring so that new job became selling records and I just worked relentlessly at pushing this record for you know a year now because I announced it on Dylan's birthday last year oh wow and and so that's been a really fun journey in a way to kind of concentrate actually on just the beauty of recorded music rather than playing shows live I mean I'd prefer to play live to be totally honest I I love interacting with people and being in a room and I love a scuzzy rock club and I quite like moving around from place to place I like a transient existence but being stuck at home has had that advantage of being able to just kind of knuckle down and go into full promo mode <laughs> and you did it really well in that you kind of went band camp only for ages and like physical and like you kind of kept it off streaming for probably six months wasn't it and I assume that was just a smart financial decision it was a purely financial decision and yeah. I also wanted to make a point I think that a lot of artists get told oh you've got to have your music everywhere um yeah. but what best practice for Taylor Swift and Beyonce and big players in the world who have corporate endorsement through advertising and all of that stuff. That's not best practice if you're an indie musician. Like, you've got to recoup the cost. If you spend $20,000 making a record, you've got to recoup those costs before you can give it away free, I think, or at least for me. I mean, probably if I had been able to tour the album I maybe wouldn't have been so hard line about keeping it off streaming services but I did want to make a point and it worked you know people went out and bought the record because I think if you're honest with other musicians and other fans and say look guys this is my job (laughs) and yeah and it's a very recent thing that people have expected music to be free anyway it's so true like when we were growing up it wasn't as if you had a choice you pay 30 bucks for a cd or you don't have the cd it's pretty funny you know because we're about the same age about the way that technology and music i mean prices haven't even really gone up over that time so you know i i'm 38 years old now and i remember paying 22 bucks for a cd or 25 bucks for a cd in 1999 yeah. <laughs> and um, and the same, like, the laptop that I got for my 21st birthday was actually more expensive than the one I got at the beginning of this <laughs> year. <laughs> like, but you have to wonder where the people factor into that. You know, we've, we've got more and more billionaires in the world. And so, you know, the, the people who pay the price of, of things being cheap or free, is, it's always the artists and the workers. It's so true. And when things become cheaper, you've got to keep this in mind, as things become cheaper, someone is always paying the price. There's, there's always someone getting screwed at the end of that as someone benefits from, you know, streaming a song for free. There's always somebody getting screwed. It's worth putting your hand into your pocket and just paying the artist, you know. I think it's a great – I think we're at a, a really – opportune moment in tech time to kind of 
engaging conversations about, well, what does streaming do? It means you can try before you buy, but have an awareness that, look, if you don't buy that King Gizzard record, there's 10 people in that band. You've got to kind of, and, and I think once folks understand that, then everything kind of moves in a better way. But for a while there, I think musicians were a little bit too embarrassed to say, oh gosh, we didn't, we're not making any money. This, this is not our job. Yeah, or to place a value on something they made. Like it's almost as if it's like, well, I can stream all the Beatles records for free. Why would I pay $20 for one that you made at home? Like they, they kind of have those, that kind of attitude towards it, I suppose. It's a bit, I suppose it's the modesty of being an artist. I mean, I think Paul and Ringo are doing okay. I haven't checked. <laughs> I, think so, yeah. I don't have a personal contact, but I, no. I'm sure they're sorted. But it's more, in, it's more in the world of indie rock and folk rock. They're so tough, which is kind of why popular music gets worse and worse too, I think. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of billionaires, you lived in Nashville, red state during the Trump presidency. I suppose Nashville's blue within a red state. What was it like when he was elected? What was it like in there? Did you notice any shift or is Nashville somewhat insulated from the rest of Tennessee? I think that all of America endured a traumatic experience with the Donald Trump presidency that is going to take decades to recover from. Being in a red state and being in a, a blue city in a red state, yeah, just incredibly frustrating and kind of utterly heartbreaking too. I mean, just you can't stop people from voting against their best interests, but that is really what happened with Donald Trump, like kind of marketing himself as this man of the people in the most toxic and revolting way. And then kind of, you know, the icing on the a very grim cake was the pandemic, which he mishandled so badly. You know, what a way to say goodbye. I'm so glad that he's gone, but those four years are just kind of, it's still, it's still very much in the, in the hearts and the minds of of, of American people. I mean, I just, I wouldn't want to endure it again. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a citizen. I'm only a green card resident. And I have that privilege of being able to go, all right, well, I can get out. But for many, <laughs> for many people, that's not not the case at all. And how did you deal with it? I just as a person living there and just experiencing it four years is such a long time like watching the news every day I'm a news junkie I'm a journalist like how did you kind of grapple with the crazy things that were going on in the world on the news like I know I personally when crazy things happen in the news I tend to sort of rant to Nathan and I sort of tend to drink wine (laughs) (laughs) is that too personal a question or like how do you how do you deal with the stress and the and the, I, I, I personally would feel rage. Like, how do you deal with those emotions? I had stress, rage, uh, a lot of wine, a breakdown. Um, I got very depressed. I made an album of Bob Dylan songs. I got back inside the art and tried to remember what it was that I loved about America and what drew me to the place in the first place. Because, I mean, you know, in these democratic countries, you can't, you still can't mistake a people for their leader. I mean, I think we'd all agree that it would be awful if everybody thought Australians were like Scott Morrison. 
um, so it's I guess kind of working through that after the kind of shock horror disaster and not being able to vote and and kind of grieving that and having a lot of rage after that I got a little bit more involved in local politics not in a um in like a joining the democratic party or anything kind of way but Mm -hmm. you know I started donating to fundraisers and and helping out with local campaigns and trying to get good candidates elected and I feel like staying engaged with trying to change what was in place is a good way to kind of fight the toxicity of the everyday news cycle. With Nashville, moving there as a musician, what were the biggest kind of misconceptions you had? Did it kind of live up to what you thought it would be? Was it completely different? In many ways, it absolutely lived up to what I thought it would be. Oh, good. But in many ways, it's also a little bit like a boyfriend like that you meet at the club and 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 you meet them on that like on, on a night and and you kind of in that first flush of love and you think oh he's perfect he like <laughs> this kind of music and he wears this type of jeans and he also thinks Lou Reed Coney Island baby is the best Lou Reed record or whatever you know it's like, it's like a very kind of superficial lust for Nashville and then of course the longer I stayed the more I got to know the place and the 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 good side as well as the the ugly side of of the city um it's a great town it's a wonderful place to make music it's really difficult to do much of anything else like as I'm a a retired journalist for want of a better word (laughs) there was not much of that kind of work to be had so I found myself waitressing for two dollars an hour plus tips and coming from Australia where we do have a good minimum wage um, that was a a real eye-opener and also you know paying through the nose every time you've got to go to the doctor and it was a revelation I think in how different America is actually to Australia even though on the surface they seem quite similar places you know you watch tv and you never really get an understanding of like fictional tv of course of, of just how different the places could be you don't watch friends and go oh rachel can't afford to go to a dentist <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and i think for me the longer i lived in america and i mean i still live there i shouldn't use the past tense i just haven't been there for nine months the longer i stay in america the longer it feels like a foreign country mm-hmm. right the more it sort of reveals itself to me as something quite alien and different mm-hmm. um, that struck me when i went to america it is just you think you understand it before you go and then when you're there it, it is so different where did you go in america well i i only went to new york but i was there for a month and i I also went to the Hamptons. <laughs> I was in Montauk in the Hamptons, but not the really expensive part of the Hamptons. But yeah, I just, I was struck by how much I didn't understand America and not in a negative way. I loved it, but I think Australians think they understand Americans and they just really don't. Yeah. And and that's not their fault. That Like I, t- I take full responsibility for my own naive <laughs> <laughs> you know it's um but the positive side is the creative culture there is really pretty fantastic pretty thriving pretty extraordinary I became a lot more of a hustler and I don't think I would have done that necessarily in Australia I went to a kind of capitalism finishing school <laughs> by being faced with uh with how they do things and and that you know I've got my own independent record label now so America kind of taught me how to run a business whereas before I didn't know jack shit like I only knew how to work for other people 
Yeah, I was going to ask about running a label because obviously you've put out this record. Has that like kind of taught you, because as you said, you were very kind of focused just on the promotion of this record for quite a while. Is that something that can be like kind of replicated with other records, do you think? Or do you think it was such a kind of singular time? I really hope so. I'm about to put that to the test. I'm going to make a record with Wayne Connolly at the end of my tour. Um, oh, wow, yeah. Sorry, He's a fantastic musician, really cool guy. And because COVID isn't as bad here, fingers crossed, I'll actually be able to be in a room with people for, for the first time in a long time and, and make songs. So, so we'll see how that goes, you know, trying to sell an album of my own material. Like, that could possibly go tits up. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I've also got, uh, you know, my partner, Robin Hitchcock, he's also a musician and mm. he's got a record that we'll put out next. Oh, great. That will be really fun doing that. I mean, he's really blessed because he's been making music for such a long time that while he's never going to break into a kind of mainstream or anything like that, he does have a really lovely, loving, hardcore he's fan got, like, obsessed fan. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing because obsessed fans, they get it. They understand about buying vinyl or CDs or cassettes or T-shirts or whatever. Yeah. They totally understand. They buy both colours of vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> with the record you're making with Wayne, can you reveal anything about that? Yeah, totally. Do you know who's playing on it? Uh, well, that's shape-shifting all the time. So sure. I, got, I couldn't confirm any players, but I could tell you that the, the songs are, um, are about homesickness and longing. Um, they're kind of and the, about that, uh, that reckoning of being in America and being in Australia. You know, I'm very inspired by bands like The Go-Betweens and The Triffids and Nick Cave and they're all Australian groups that went overseas to have a little bit of an existential crisis and try and work <laughs> out what, what what art to make and um and I've definitely followed in in their footsteps so that's the kind of record that I'm making. Go Between's made very Australian records when they kind of 16 Lovers Lane is such an Aussie record to make about being homesick, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Triffids, Wide Open Road, I mean, it's such an Australian song. Totally, yeah. It sounds like driving on a wide open road. Yeah, and Nick Cave, it's taken a little bit longer, I think, to get that sense of his Australian-ness into into his vernacular. I think that that's coming through more and more. Now that he's a bit more comfortable with his place, I think think that that's... Beginning to reveal itself now, which I love. But yeah, these songs, I don't know that it won't have that go between sense of, you know, cattle and cane. I won't be writing songs about sheep farms in Wagga Wagga. Um, I have been writing about that time apart. They're songs about longing and desire that go across both America and Australia. And have you taken any cues from Dylan? Were there like 15-minute songs in the mix? I haven't got any 15-minute songs in the mix yet, uh, (laughs) but I've still got like I'm on day eight of quarantine, so I've still got quite a few days to kind of nut out some verses. (laughs) When Dylan did Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, he didn't tell the band how long it was going to be yeah. we were still writing it in the studio so I might just tell Wayne and the band yeah it's this three minute song and then just keep, <laughs> 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 keep on ranting at them well your version of Sad Eyed Lady is 30 seconds longer than Dylan's I noticed well take a sad song and make it longer slower and longer <laughs> <laughs> amazing you're also playing theatres that's got to be a very exciting thing to be 
coming back to Sydney and playing. You're playing the State Theatre? In- I'm not playing the State. I'm playing the City Recital Hall. The City Recital Hall. That's oh, the one. Yeah, sorry. And the Palais in Melbourne. Yeah. And that's going to be amazing. I mean, just so special. I'm used to playing the kind of scuzzier rock clubs. And every rock club I've ever played in Sydney always winds up closing. Yeah, so- I remember. I saw you last time. I think you and you played with Robin upstairs at the Sander. Mm. It was kind of in that in-between because now it's a putt-putt place. Yeah, I mean, I mean, miniature golf. I mean, see, there's things wherever you live, something is about wherever you get, where you are is just going to break your heart. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, the, the Newtown Social Club, formerly Sando, becoming a putt-putt golf place is just so, I mean, there's just not enough Prozac in the world to to really take that in is there it was really like a knife in the heart that one wasn't it it was hard to deal with I mean I'm still I mean I carry my heartbreak around with me it's probably what what makes me a good singer but a mate of mine put a a picture of the Hopeton Hotel up on his Facebook today I mean I still get tears in my eyes thinking about what a magical special unique venue that was that no longer exists and I mean I guess that's progress Yeah. yeah The Annandale as well. Yeah. I had I think it must have been my 23rd birthday upstairs at the Annandale Hotel. It was a total blinder. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so rad. Like just a really, really good time. And I've seen I saw so many good bands in, in that venue. My God. Yeah, it's, it's all a bit sad, isn't it? Just back to the putt putt place. I'm so angry about it too. People have really embraced it and they go there and I just that's how you know you're a true rocker when you just can't embrace. Yeah. and you can't go there I can't even go there I'm so angry about it <laughs> I can't move on <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm not going to be able to walk past South King Street like I'll have to I'll have to do a, like a, I used to live on Station Street just behind there so I'll have to do like a little Station Street detour so I yeah. don't yeah. <laughs> I'll miss like going and getting a potato cake at the burger joint that's next door but I just don't know if I can deal with the heartbreak <laughs> that's why that back lane is there it's like rock and exactly. roll for the true rocker. Yeah. Well, Dean, you'll be pleased to know Dean's Diner is still there, still doing potato cakes. Uh, Dean's there. Diner. I mean, I haven't yeah. had a burger with beetroot on it in ages, so yeah, I've got needs. <laughs> uh, you were nominated for Best Country Album for your EP in 2014 at the Iris. It's quite a feat. It's really funny because I'm not part of the country scene here, which is like very much a scene. It's pretty kind of locked in and I don't yeah, see the lack of utes and I don't wear a hat and I don't have any commercial instincts or desires at all and my love of country music is like it's born out of a love of Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt and Tammy Wynette and so it's pretty funny to to have a country nom like I'm so grateful it's a branding nightmare uh, because, (laughs) because folks read my wiki and then go oh you must be a country artist like so I'll do an interview and they'll be like Australian country singer I'm like yeah that's really how my music sounds like if you just like listened to one song you would know that but like cool (laughs) the journalist me gets like a little pissy about that like could you not have like done like a modicum of research outside of yes. google but <laughs> do you think troy casadaly when you think australian I mean, country artist i love troy i think he's fantastic <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I think but you don't sound like him but he's like yeah exactly and he's a real heartland rocker too he's coming from that john mellencamp kind of school 
I think. Yeah, that is very true. But it's but it's really hard when someone calls you a country artist and you're like, well, I mean, I have nothing to do with Lee Kernigan, even like Trisha Yearwood or anything like that. So what it does is it, it's hard because then country music fans who get pointed my way get disappointed too because they're like, this doesn't sound like country. <laughs> yeah. So how long are you planning to stay in Sydney for? I escape my lockdown on Monday night if I pass my COVID test and then um, and then I'm in Sydney for a week and trying to get people out to, to come to the show and then I go to Melbourne for rehearsals and then tour starts and then I'll be in Australia until the first week of July. I mean, it's such a long way to come and quarantine is so yeah. excellent. Really got to <laughs> really had to get paying for my buck. So, and I, I desperately want to see my friends and family and and just engage with the outside world again sure. because I've I've lived a pretty weird, loner, isolated existence. Well, you'll be pleased to know there's a load of new bars on Edmore Road. Bars to take all my money. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. In London, where I've been, once the lockdown ended, you could go outside, but you, I mean, you could go to a bar, but you had to sit outside and socially distant tables like i haven't been able to be actually inside of an establishment in a very long time yeah. and i've got a lot of um old friends and who i'm sure will be very happy to partake on a on a little bar <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be so fun um so darren middleton is in your live band right he kind of put it together didn't he for australia yeah darren middleton put it together which is really exciting and how many songs have you got rehearsed up we're going to do i guess it's about 15 oh. about 15 songs I mean we get into the rehearsal space in 10 days and so we're doing all the eight tracks from my record and then we're going to add in a little bit more of the I guess I, I want to call it crowd pleasing Dylan because yeah. my, my album is not exactly like Dylan's greatest hits. And so we wanted to throw in a, a few more kind of jams that people will know and love as well as the, the lesser known songs. And what's your favourite Dylan album? Oh, God, it mutates and changes yeah. all the time. I mean, I really got obsessed with Rough and Rowdy Ways last year. Um, <laughs> yeah. Murder Most Foul is such an epic song. Absolutely brilliant. Dylan is the great American orator and he's like the... <laughs> He's like the musicology professor I, I I had a crush on or something, you know. <laughs> and so I love Rock from Outie Ways. I always have a soft spot for infidels because I'm a child of the 80s and Bob with a mullet and one earring yep. and Mark Knopfler guitars is pretty cool. But, I mean, when it comes down to it, really, if, if it was doing that kind of ridiculous desert island disc thing where you're like, only one Dylan record. I'd take Blonde on Blonde. What's your favourite Dylan record? Yeah, I think it's Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, well, me too. Yeah. I feel like it has to be that. I like Desire yeah. a lot. You like Desire too? Yeah, I like how it sounds so dramatic and like the violin. I like Emmy Lou in it. Yeah, I like Desire as well. I think that Desire, Nashville might have burned me out on Desire a bit because yeah, I, I can think imagine. that that vibe became a very popular aesthetic choice musically for a lot of people in the community that I was in and a lot right. of people a lot of people do Dylan desire era cosplay and it just gets a well, little we live bit in Newtown, so we understand that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I, my partner's always dressed in a polka dot shirt, so he's a slightly earlier era Bob, and, and that's, that's an aesthetic that I'm kind of more into. He's just like mm. kinks cosplay. <laughs> right. Have you been covering Dylan for like a long time? Is it something that you've always done as 
as like a musician or, or is this sort of something you did? Is it something that you started doing recently? I, I never really played Dylan live, like when I was playing my solo shows. And it was really only, I kind of, he put out triplicate and I really admired the obsessive compulsiveness of that project. And so I wanted to slipstream him there. Before that, when I played covers in my set, I was doing Roland S. Howard. I mean, the last time I played in Sydney, I played Brian Ferry, Roxy Music, In Every Dream Home, A Heartache. So <laughs> um, I'm a massive Brian Ferry fan and he did a, an entire rec- record of Dylan's songs too. So, you know, I sometimes wonder if there was something in my subconscious that was it was actually Brian Ferry that got me here and not Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've noticed that a lot of people are going like, oh, will you do a follow-up Dylan album? I assume that's not on the cards. So is that just me projecting? Oh, I haven't ruled it out. I wasn't scared about doing this Dylan record because I was literally so depressed that I just needed something to get out of bed for. So I booked this studio time and went did it now that the record has been so well received and people have been so kind the idea of doing a follow-up is a bit more intimidating (laughs) yeah I can imagine I think I probably will revisit Dylan because so many of the people who've been introduced to what I do musically now only know me as an interpreter of Dylan songs I'd be foolish not to revisit Dylan at some point but I'm not in a hurry to I I want to kind of explore my own songwriting for a little bit and then maybe do a record of Lou Reed song oh, oh, yes. wow, that'd be cool. Blonde on the Smack it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing <laughs> Do you reckon Dylan's songwriting has rubbed off on this new batch of songs that you've written? Absolutely. I'm really, really glad that singing Dylan's songs has given me an opportunity to go for the deep dive and the close study. I think I am a much better songwriter because of it. Uh, You know, I'm never going to be as good as Dylan. I'm only ever going to be an okay songwriter, really. Well, if you can pay yourself Dylan, like no one's as good as him. Or anyone, really. You know, it's, I mean, I'm a singer and, and so, I mean, the best I can hope for in a song is that it really expresses my intent and gets something out. I'm much more in love with the idea of giving a good performance than necessarily perfecting a a song. But but my songwriting has improved. Like my first EP, that one that you mentioned that has the aria country nomination, it's absolutely beautifully produced. But if I'm perfectly honest, the songs are pretty mediocre. And maybe I'm being harsh on myself. It's also seven years ago as well. Like you'd want to have grown. So I don't have that record online anywhere anymore. You know, I've kind of, (sighs) because you've got to, in the old days, a record would disappear. Especially you know, those, an AP, yeah. Those super early Joni Mitchell records before Blue and before Coyote, and they all disappeared. The folk record that Emmylou Harris made before she was rebranded as the Graham Parsons Harmony Singer, that disappeared. There's a lot to be said for just kind of learning something from a project and then deleting it. Not everything has to live forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's Neil Young records that weren't available for decades. And you listen to them now and they're pretty damn good. I mean, I really yeah. like um, yeah, I think it's really but, good. And and perhaps that goes to say that, you know, like an artist is the, the worst judge of their own work, that anything comes out at, at all is like you just kind of get us in like a particular period of mania or desperation. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then let the chips fall where they may. Oh, that's what I wanted to ask you about. You were a newsreader on ABC, weren't you, back in the day? Yeah, I used to be a newsreader. That was really a fantastic experience. Really, really good. I don't know how I did it now. I look back on my 20s where I was going out all night and then getting up at 4am to read the news at 5am. <laughs> I just think that was a kind of madness. But it was a really fun time. Newsrooms are kind of weirdly like music. They're, they're kind of electric energy. I think I was on radio news and that and that has a different kind of energy because you've mm. got to have that it's that stress of people filing things just before the hour and you know mm. I love a, I love a high pressure scenarios so yeah it, I guess that case worked well for me mm. well digital journalism is a bit like that as well because it's like just get it done get it done get it out there get it done and it's like it is quite amazing what you can produce in like a pressure cooker situation like that and how much you can achieve and how much you can get done and the thrill of having that many in a digital news situation all those readers it's it is a terrifying and thrilling experience it's quite addictive like you say sometimes you look back on a day you've had or yeah like like the experience you had in your 20s and you go I don't know how I did that I don't know how I got through that day or or whatever experience it might be it's it's just so high pressure and it's you go oh my god I can't believe I just completed that day (laughs) I definitely got burned out on news that is definitely true I mean I think I respect the folks who stay in news for 40 years and build entire careers out of it I find that fairly amazing and still stay engaged as well yeah when we were talking a little bit earlier about politics if you're not in news you do have that freedom I think to dip out I don't have to know every idiotic quote that Scott Morrison has made anymore and and that's a pleasant relief (laughs) I, I I presume the podcast isn't sponsored by the LNP and these things are going to be no, no. <laughs> well thank you so much Emma oh pleasure thanks for having me thanks for chatting to us and, yeah, um, thank you so much yeah. thank you Emma that's our chat with musician Emma Swift whose album Blonde on the Tracks is out now you can get that from Bandcamp you can get it on vinyl you can get it on cassette you can get it on CD you can get it anywhere you want to get it thank you for listening to Already Saturday remember to follow us on Instagram at already saturday subscribe to our show give us a five-star rating if you want to if you dare and we'll leave you alone now bye